Claire Massoud's latest book is Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write, an autobiography and essays. Even with such an idiosyncratic title, the collection of previously published essays welcomes in readers who appreciate the fraternal twins of language and literature as what Massoud calls an astonishing invention. She's hard-pressed to give that due to any other modern convenience during life's challenging moments, for ourselves as individuals or, indeed, for ourselves as part of a global community. This is Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. I'm Yvette Benavides. Claire Massoud, the author of six works of fiction, brings us nonfiction now, essays covering wide-ranging topics from childhood and family to pets and writing, as well as profound critical essays on a variety of books. Taken all together, the essays in this book do help us understand why it is that Claire Massoud writes and reads. We spoke to her recently from her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I want to ask you, first of all, about this book's title. It's so enigmatic. And in the essay of the same name, you explained the title. So can you share a little bit about the origin of the title for our listeners? Uh, sure, sure. So the title comes actually from uh, from a uh, novel by Thomas Bernhardt, who was a grumpy Austrian uh, writer who who died in 1989, um, and and in his book he talks about the fact that uh, whatever whatever exists in the in literary terms exists in the world, um, we only retain a small portion of it. And I don't know if that's true for you, but it's certainly true for me that I re- can read a novel and really love it. And six months later, if you ask me about it, I'll remember maybe one scene or three scenes or, you know, a couple of images, a character. Um, so, so there's, there's this uh, constant struggle with language that we're, we're trying to save uh, what 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 we have and, and and what we know and our experiences and our what's in our imaginations and we're trying to communicate it, but but it's always also being lost and um, and 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 it, in some ways I I think of you know Samuel Beckett saying fail again fail better it is it is in some way a doomed enterprise but it's also a really hopeful enterprise and and I I believe in it. Uh, absolutely, I feel as though my life is given to that, to, to trying to understand the communications of others and to trying to communicate to others. Yeah, I just love this. I mean, even for whatever falls away because of our attention spans or the things that tug at our at our attention all day and we'll forget a certain scene of a story that we love um, and retain, you know, maybe the same one or two scenes. <laughs> I just love this idea from you about language being just the greatest invention. <laughs> Isn't it the coolest though? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, I, I mean, I realize it's, you know, what I'm saying is, is in, in that respect is, is not especially sophisticated, <laughs> it, but, but, but I, but I really, you know, I feel we, I don't know, we live in a time when there's so much to be astounded about, you know, I, I, I was with our kids, we, we were, or our son, we were watching the, um, the the Ken Burns documentary about the about gene study and just in the past you know the extraordinary thing that in the past fifty years it's been po- become possible to read the the the, the human uh, genetic code you know DNA incredible you know but 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 there are there you know there, cool things happened before and language is just the coolest thing 
It is, and it's intersection with with literature. I mean, it's so. I was saying some to somebody the other day. I, I confessed to someone that I was moved to tears when I read a particular short story. And she said, oh, that's never happened to me. And I felt so sorry for her. It, well, it's, you know, I think I, I was saying myself, I was talking to another friend and just talking about the fact that, especially in this time, in this COVID time, when so much is, has, has been denied us in a way, you know, so, so much is shut down and, and, and it's been hard to see friends and it's been hard to see family and it's been hard to do things that we would usually do. It's certainly been hard to go exploring and traveling, you know, but books are with us. You're never alone. And then those, all the worlds, when I think of it, just, okay, I realize I sound like a total geek, but you think of a book and how much does it weigh, right? Not very much. A little paperback, you can put it in your pocket and there's an entire world inside it. You know, an entire world. And you can carry that around and, and read it anywhere. You don't need any talk technology. You don't need anything special. And then once you've read it, you carry around whatever it is that you retain. You carry around in your head wherever you go. And it becomes one of the experiences that you had in life, as if you went to Beijing or as if you went, you know, mm-hmm. as if you ate in the fanciest restaurant in New York City. But it's in a book. And there's so much in your book about other books, and I, I want to get to that. But this collection is divided into three sections. And the first one includes these personal essays or reflections, uh, and the middle section's about literary criticism of books, and the last about artistic work. I want to focus just for a little bit on the 11 reflections in the first part. Mm-hmm, um, sure. And before that, even on the introduction, which I count as sort of the dozen, right? It's the it's the it's the twelfth. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, in this first part, I feel like, well, you tell me. The introduction was actually written during this pandemic, even though these are previously published works. There's something about this introduction now making a nod to the COVID crisis, and you say in the introduction that this terrible crisis that we're all enduring has revealed, um, you say, a number of things to us, including that pollution can be reduced and that we are capable of old-fashioned connection. And you also say um, that it exists in the same space where faith and truth are fatally commingled. So there was so much about that introduction that I thought really, as it should, right, bring it brings together this collection of diverse essays for us and, and puts us in this moment right now and reminds us of precisely what you were just saying about what books can do for us. Um, but can you talk a little bit about, did you have to revise that introduction? Was there another introduction? There was book? another introduction, and, and I felt as though, um, I guess I felt that the other introduction uh, as previously written was funnily enough, less optimistic and more crabby. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that um, I feel as though our, you know, our lives have obviously um, been changed by technology. It's a good 20 years now um, that, that, that life has been sort of everyday life has been revolutionized first by the internet and, and then, and then by smartphones and, 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 and just, we have a very different way of living in daily life than we did before the turn of the century. And and I think some of the things that, that come up in the book elsewhere, not just in the introduction, um, about this this 
my desire at least, but I know it's not just mine. I know from talking to other people that um, for things to slow down, for, for, for us to feel that there's more space in our lives, for, the, for there to be more room for, for what I call immaterial superfluity, for stuff that isn't um, utilitarian and necessary, for, for stuff that you can't put a value on, you know, that you can't say, um, I can measure what's worthwhile about doing this thing. Um, those are the things that have been progressively sort of squeezed out of our lives um, or squeezed to the margins much more than they were. And, you know, I mean, a, a simple example would be, that I used to hang out with my friends. And now, um, now uh, before the pandemic even, I would see my friends to go for a walk because you wouldn't want to be just seeing your friends. That would be a waste of time. But if you're burning calories at the same time, well, then you can, excuse, you know, then you can allow yourself mm-hmm. to see your friends. You know, and I, th- and I think we just generally, that multitasking idea, the idea that we should be fitting more and more into a day. Um, and, 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 and I think, there, you know, there are a lot of broader uh, conversations that we can have around that, but 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 it suddenly seemed in the time of of the lockdown, it was really quite extraordinary, right? That from one day to the next, our lives changed, and and, and yes, I mean, there's so there's so many uh, traumas and and terrible experiences, and so much loss, and so much pain, um, and so much anxiety. But there's also been, I mean, there've been. There was an article just the other day in um, in the Boston Globe, which is my local paper, about commuting, and and the pe- there are people who have who have regained five hours, six hours in a day because they don't have to drive into Boston to go to work, and 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 they were interviewing those people who were saying, I, I I've taken my kids to the park, right? I've I've had family dinner, I've you know. And, and if you think back sort of in, in the generation, uh, in the mid generation of, of, of now 70 years ago, right, it was understood that whatever work was, you were trying to make room in your life to take your kids to the park <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and eat family dinner, right? But, but somehow in this strange endless quest for greater efficiency and, and more productivity and, and some sense that we're, you know, but we're all on a gerbil wheel to wear. And, and, and the, and it seems that the, that this radical crisis has has opened a space where we might pause and think about that and say, actually, spending time with my kids is really important, or reading a novel is really important, or listening to music, not while I'm doing 10 other things, but just sitting there and closing my eyes and listening to the music, that's important. And I keep thinking about um, all of this, what you're saying about time, sort of time has finally slowed down for us. I mean, um, for a pretty terrible reason, as you say, but but now we need to make the most of it and use those five hours that we would have been commuting for something else. But I keep thinking about those long, languid hours of your childhood that you describe in these uh, first essays of your collection you also show this beautiful restraint in your voice while you deliver the details of such sorrow and such strife endured by the people in your family that you love so well. Um, the details of their own lives 
and the places that they lived and the places that you got to experience. So Canada and the United States and Australia and France, etc. And I, I keep wondering about the idea of home mm-hmm. based on everything you're saying about the pandemic and staying close to home and moving in sort of limited spaces, but doing more with our time in those spaces. But I'm wondering about you as a writer of place. I can see this idea of, as you say, as you have said, of either feeling at home anywhere or feeling at home nowhere. I wonder how even what occurred in your formative years affects how you see now this this idea of home where you are today in 2020. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, it's a good question. And I think the truth is that I do feel at home um, in my actual home now. I mean, we've we've lived um, in, in the place that we live right now. We've lived for 12 years, which is longer um, than I'd ever lived anywhere. And and um, and we've lived in the Boston area for 17 years, which is longer than I've lived anywhere. Um, and so so there you know i i think from one of the things that my husband and i both really wanted to do was give our children a feeling of home a sense that there was a place on the planet that they thought of as home and um and so you know that 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 was a deliberate choice and i think our kids do feel at home and and our family is our home you know i was raised to believe that that your family moved around, but your family was your home. So that, you know, you, you, I, it was very much this idea of, of, of unconditional love and, and, and recourse that wherever, you know, wherever somebody ended up in the world, if they were your family, you could go to them and be with them and you'd be safe. And, you know, that, that was a wonderful gift, but there was no one place. Um, there was no one place because we moved around quite a bit. The place that was most consistent was my, I mean, we're my grandparents' houses on both sides. You know, my my grandparents, um, I write, there's a piece that's about my French grandparents' apartment, and that was the one place um, that didn't change when I was growing up, that we always went back to. Um, and, and, you know, selling that after they died and after my parents died, um, we sold that apartment. And, and that was a that was a real change because I'd always felt that, that there was a place that was, in, in that family sense, a home to go back to. You know, it wasn't it wasn't big enough for everybody to live in for very long, but but it, but it was a place that had always been there, um, and and you know, but but most of us uh, lose that in in time. Even if we've grown up in one place, you you often lose that. You know, um, so I. But I think it's an interesting. I, I do just want to say on the on the question of home that I think. One of the confusions for me about this particular period, this, these re- recent few years um, in 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 the United States, but also around the world, is that I was really brought up um, with some understanding that as a as a in in this country, but also in the wider world, we were all moving towards um, sort of progressing towards some idea of mutual tolerance understanding and inclusion and that we were breaking down barriers you know i'm i'm of the i'm of the generation that was um that was young at the time that the that the the wall came down in berlin and and the end of the soviet union and the the dropping of the iron curtain and the sense of you know that that, that the world was getting people were getting closer together the world will live as one and um 
And I think in that sense, the idea that you could be in some way at home almost anywhere was the ideal that that I always believed in and I still on some level believe in. And And yet we have entered a time that is a backlash against that and we have entered a time of tribalisms and um, nationalisms and and the raising of barriers and the exclusion of people and um and that's a really big change and it's it, it's a funny thing it's a funny thing to find that something you believed in your whole life and believed was a, an was absolutely a good thing has been abandoned as a project by so much of the world <laughs> it's a very it's i'm still kind of getting my head around that well, and you do revisit this idea in uh, in your book and in some of these critical essays. I'm thinking about the one about Valeria Luiselli's book. So in more recent years, where we have now, we can look at a work like Valeria Luiselli's, who is writing about such a painful part of our current situation in the United States and will ever be one of the worst chapters for those of us who are witnessing it today. <sighs> Um, so I want to come to this idea about, in your book, about how criticism and turning of a very clear gaze at these works, how criticism is also autobiographical. Yes. And, and you know, um, there's the question, I, I've written more reviews than are in the book. So how did I choose the ones that are there? And, and it's really, the, I think, the books that have been that I feel have been really important to me in different ways, you know, that have changed my, um, either my understanding of what a novel is or my understanding of the world. Um, and I think, you know, in, in the case of, of Valeria Luiselli's novel, it, it is, I mean, it's both a change and it, it, it both um, challenges in really wonderful ways what, my understanding of a novel might be, and also my understanding of the world, because that novel, um, I don't know if you're familiar also with her book of essay, or her essay is called um, Tell Me How It Ends, An Essay in 40 Questions, mm -hmm. which is a slim volume, but which is, as it were, the nonfiction counterpart to this novel, which she wrote first, and which is, which is um, about her experiences as a translator for an NGO for refugees. So she was a translator in the courts, for young people um, who were who who were coming um, uh, applying as, for refugee status as DACA immigrants, and then she it was on the basis of those experiences that she came to write. Then she and her family took a trip to the Southwest and to the border to to to, to find out more about what was going on, and that's how she then came to write the novel. So 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 you can actually um, with her her work you can actually see the this transformation of of the nonfiction into the into the fiction and 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 one of the things that she does is have a, a portion of the novel narrated by one of the children that's to say one of the, one of the there's the fam, a family goes on this trip to the southwest and one of the children in the family and and it's almost like a fairy tale and it it in some ways isn't necessarily realistic but it, but the portion that the child narrates it is filled with hope, and it's filled. I mean, it has lots of terror and and anxiety and um, and travails and difficulties. But like a fairy tale, it has a happy ending. And and I think um, I'm really struck 
you know, especially as time goes by, I'm really struck by the importance of, of that vision, even if it's in the realm of fairy tale, if you see what I mean. That, that, that art can give us hope when the times are so dark that it's hard to find hope. Yeah, even with a work like that, which, and I've read both of them, and it wasn't until I read your essay that I felt the the hopeful part more acutely, and I understood what you meant. So it's yeah. a very interesting experience. But I, I need to tell you how much I appreciate the essay, Our Dogs, and <laughs> the painful honesty with which you describe these difficult truths that a lot of us understand <laughs> about our pets <laughs> when they contribute so much anxiety <laughs> to our daily lives, but yet you cannot imagine life without them. I just have to tell you that. I just Have, have people reacted much to uh, that essay before over the years? Well, it, that that it was published first in a magazine, and and I had some, you know, some people um, responded to it when, when it when it was published there, and and um, I've had I've had I mean I yeah I've had a few responses to it. It's interesting because I feel it's one of those things though that divides the world into pet pet people and not pet people, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because the not the not pet people are like what? Why would you have those animals? Why? Why would that's disgusting? You know, because because an old dog, you know, maybe goes to the bathroom in the house. You know, it's it, it it's like it happens, and 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 of course, if you if you don't if you're somebody who does not see the point of of having a house pet, you're like that that's just disgusting. <laughs> it's a very hard thing to explain to a non-pet person. <laughs> I know, I know, and 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 I have to say, in the moment when you're cleaning up some do, you know dog mess inside you're thinking <laughs> you're thinking like a non-pet person how did this happen in my life how did that how could it be that I this is it how can I be doing this so I really appreciate the introduction to Sally Mann I was not familiar with the work of Sally Mann um, so I'm thinking about how she's a photographer who wrote and you say that she wrote about the contents of boxes in her attic Mm-hmm. But might, you said, might as well be writing about her ap approach to memoir as a whole and that she makes clear that she works, loves her work, and loves her life with equal and unflagging intensity. And I kept thinking about um, this other idea of that she wrote, to be able to take my pictures, I have to look all the time at the people and places I care about with both warm ardor and cool appraisal in that ardent heart there must also be a splinter of ice and I kept thinking about how that could possibly connect back to the 11 reflections of yours um, and I'm thinking about uh, a couple of the essays well all of the essays but a couple of them in particular that I have notes about here one of them is two women um, mm -hmm. And the other is mother's knee, but just this idea of this dual uh, perspective or this dual approach to writing about our own lives. I'm a great believer in that, that the need for both ardor and clarity. I guess it, it isn't, um, I know it's not straightforward. I know it's not straightforward at all. But I, but I still hold in my heart that the most loving thing you can ever do is be honest. Mm -hmm. 
and um, and tell the truth. And I, as I said, I, I know that's actually um, in some way naive, or but I come from a family where a, there were, there were a lot of untruths told to to protect people's feelings, um, and I actually came to believe that was a disservice. And and I I certainly feel that as an artist you have a commitment to the the truth by which i mean above all hu- human truth rather than specific you know specifically to tell true things about what you know the the point of fiction is that you can make something up that's or make things up that's you know that's why i'm a fiction writer chiefly rather than chiefly a nonfiction writer but when i'm but when i'm writing uh, as i am in these essays n- nonfiction um it 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 would seem to me to do n- nobody a service to pass over things or tell untruths about things. And, and at the same time, um, yes, you, you know, I, I feel like... It, so, so, for example, I mean, this, may, this all sounds rather abstract, but say my aunt late in her life, um, as the old expression has it, took to drink. She wasn't, she wasn't an alcoholic when I was growing up. Um, it, was only, she was, she, she, it was only after her own parents died she took care of them. Um, she lived with them and took care of them, and um, and then and then she took care of her brother, my father, from afar. Um, but she called him every day and was very solicitous. And when he died, she didn't. She she was in despair and she didn't want to be alive anymore. And she basically drank herself to death. And um, and I loved my aunt. And um, and the last years were very very difficult. And I, I guess I I suppose that that part of I feel that part of of loving someone is 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 looking clearly at them is seeing them clearly and seeing clearly what's going on and not pretending that it didn't happen and not pretending that it wasn't difficult um but saying this is life too and you know when you when you love people it's through thick and thin and sometimes you make mistakes and sometimes things don't go as you want and um sometimes you know, it's all just a colossal mess. But 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 to pretend otherwise does nobody any favors, and that's not loving. It's not loving to do that. Well, I think about the way, and your aunt Denise comes through as such. Uh, even though she she's in only a few of the essays, she comes through as such a force because she was so complicated. Um, in her childhood, she was complicated. And things were very complicated all around her. Mm-hmm. And then in her adult life, things, either things were very complicated all around her. It's difficult to care for a loved one and worry about a loved one. But then also these other things about her eating disorder, the smoking, the drinking, and these terrible, um, I guess they were sort of unrequited love affairs or these you know this terribly broken heart that she seemed to be living with but not being able to articulate not being able to articulate what was going on well and and you know that too i think about um talking about the world that we were you know that i thought we were all working towards and moving towards and believing in that it turns out i was i was you know in the clouds and not in reality but i but when i look at my parents generation um i think there was so much shame 
so much fear and shame. Um, and so it's easy to forget now, you know, when I think we, you hear people sort of being nostalgic for for an orderly world. And, and Lord knows, I have some nostalgia for an orderly world. I, 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 I wish my, I wish everything didn't, I, I wish I weren't always running a day late and a dollar short and all things, but, but so much of, of conforming and this idea that people should conform to certain um, standards or ideas or, 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 you know, public images of things, it just creates a culture of fear and shame. And if you're not, if you feel you're not right and you don't fit what you're supposed to be, um, you, you suffer terribly. And, and if, you, if you feel ashamed of it, you don't feel you can tell anybody. Thank goodness the culture is largely not in that place. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, you know, she, that my, my, my French relatives were not only of an earlier generation, but they were very religious Catholics, and, um, and it was a very European, old-world um, worldview, you know. It was a worldview in which my aunt's role was to get married and have children. And so as soon as she was somebody who didn't do that, she felt she had failed at, at what, she was, what it was most important for her to do. I know you had to be very selective. You couldn't include every essay. But I'd keep going back to the young Claire Massoud reading her mom's books, right? Pilfering her mom's uh, stacks of books. Well, I, I, I feel as though, you know, it's, it's a thing I say probably more than once in the, in the book, that the things that we read really shape us. And, um, and they are like experiences that we've had, you know, especially the books that we love. And so it, it, it is, when you're a kid, you, you don't, I mean, I was a kid who loved to read, like, I'd read the cereal box, I'd, I'd read, <laughs> you know, I'd read the fine print on the aspirin bottle, I'd read anything, I just, I loved, you know, I, I, whenever I sat down, I wanted to be reading, so I read in the car, and read in the bathroom, <laughs> you know, I read everywhere, and, um, and, and yet, when you're a kid, you, you don't, you don't really think, oh, if I choose this thing rather than that thing, you know, I'll be a different person. And and yet in some way, what we are exposed to um, does shape and change us. And I also feel like it opens up almost, the more you read, I, you know, I know how this sounds, but the more you read, it sort of opens up more and more rooms in the palace in your mind. It's like, the, the, it, it's just this sense of possibility and this, and this, apprehension of the of of the, the the infinity of the infinitude of the world of all there is out there um that 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 if you don't read you maybe don't have access to in the same way and i think you know you, you could say doesn't the internet now give us that but but i i, I guess i feel that the visual there's something different about words because it, it, in your imagination then you have to picture things and you have to create them for yourself, which is different from seeing images of things on a screen. It's a much more active, I think your brain is engaged in a different way when you're reading. And so, you know, all of this is a bit of a digression, but, but, I, but I think that um, you, I was so shaped by things I didn't know were shaping me. And you know, picking up my mother's books and sort of borrowing them because I, I thought they were cool because they were what the grown-ups read. And, but they gave me this very particular understanding that, like, women writers were everywhere, <laughs> which, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, 
I'm not sure the the general public would necessarily have agreed in 1978. You know, um, that 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 there were these particular types of stories that I that I discovered that I wouldn't have if my mother hadn't handed them to me. Um, you know, I I this will seem a total uh, digression, but. But I was really struck a year or two ago in a conversation. It was before a panel discussion. I teach at a university, and it was before the panel, a panel discussion at the university. And one of my colleagues um, was was telling us that she was teaching a Zora Neale Hurston course, and somebody else in the group said, "Oh, you must find that all the students have read." Uh, Their eyes were watching God, and she said, "No, you know, it's really interesting. Um, in fact." people from the West Coast or the Northeast may have read it in school, but but basically, no. And then she went on to say she herself was African-American, and she went on to say that she was from, and younger, like much younger than me, in her 30s. And she said, um, when I was in high school, or not in high school, when I was in school, from K through 12, I was never once assigned a book by a writer of color. And I was just open mouth, like I kind of couldn't believe it. And I said, you know, that's because at the time, you know, I st- our, our daughter's now in college, but at the time, both our kids were in in school, and 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 I feel like there's a there's a, a, a in in Massachusetts at least there's a there's a real effort to have a diverse curriculum. And I just suddenly had this moment of thinking, no wonder. Our country seems like so many countries where people can't talk to each other. It's like the, the imaginary world inside our heads is so different. And if you have never encountered, if you're a white person who's never encountered a story by or about a person of color the entire time you've been at school, what does the world inside your head look like? Like it's really, really different from growing up reading all kinds of different stories by all kinds of different people. It's just a really different experience. What do you want people to take away about this book, about this autobiography and essays? One thing I would say is that the great thing about a book is that it will always be there. So so in the moment when you can't bear any more about the election, and and you can't hear another word on the radio about the pandemic, and you can't. The books are all there, waiting for us. They're like they're like the best friends you ever had. Um, they they never abandon us. And so, I think, in a way that that what my book of essays is 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 my testament to how important that's been for me and in my life. That that through. Through thick and thin and um, ups and downs, you know that that the word and the sentence and the paragraph and uh, and novels and nonfiction books uh, that all these all these things have have sustained and nourished me and helped me grow as a person. And it, it, I would just wish to, to uh, a plug for for slowing down and the intimacy of verbal communication through writing that that I guess the book is sort of a love letter to my family and a love letter to books. Claire Massoud, thank you so much for talking to me. 
Oh, thank you. It's been a wonderful, a wonderful privilege for me. Claire Massoud is the author of six works of fiction, including The Emperor's Children and The Burning Girl. Her latest work, Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write, is an autobiography in essays. It's published by Norton. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.